1: Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever, you know the drill. This is Alan Averill, the Sagittarius Agitators Anonymous. This is episode 169, if I am not mistaken. My dear, do you want me to stand on my head? Well, anyway greetings to you all from a rainy rainy cold and miserable dublin yes i know it seems unbelievable if you are unlucky enough to be in one of those countries that right now is suffering from an incredible heat wave um but all month all month dublin has been literally like a uh, like 5 p.m in october uh, i'm looking out the window right now and it's lashing rain and i do there was a a, a brief moment i felt sorry for some of the bands and that we're playing open air last weekend and the weekend before in Dublin, how grim that must be. You book your gig, you think oh, brilliant one, two, three thousand people gonna show up um in the venue opposite where I live, and then at five p m you do your line check or your sound check, and it's just lashing with rain, and you just have to go, well, it is a lovely country if they could just roof it as they say. So what am I going to talk about today? Well, I'm going to talk about why do bands re-record albums, um, what happened to the live album, and the significance of the live album. I suppose that really should be a podcast in itself, but I'm going to try and um, move in both of them because there was a sort of a debate raging on a WhatsApp group I was in um, and it was getting, you know, of course, we're all heavy metal nerds defending it to the last peace of mind or power slave. If you've been looking at my Instagram uh, question upload on my YouTube channel, you'll see a very important um, internal monologue debate over that very same question. Power slave or peace of mind, Metallic or Megadeth. These are things that heavy metal is weaned upon, weaned upon the teat of splitting hairs, my friends. Well, indeed, Um the debate was raging about um, why the Cavalera brothers have re-recorded more revisions in Bestial Devastation. So it got me to thinking about why bands do such a thing. And I thought to myself, well, seeing as I have a little insight into the, um, you know, the backdoor shenanigans of the music industry, maybe we can analyze that. So let's do that. And I'll look at the live album. Phenomenon of the 1970s and the 1980s that sadly died a death. Before we go anywhere, I must first um, announce that um, this podcast, or the I'm going to say something important, and that is that my uh, brother, Nicholas Barker, um, who I made the Twilight of the Gods album with, you will know him from a million bands, Cradle of Borgier, Timmy um, Our boy is suffering from some um, kidney issues. And under the link in the podcast, theres I'm going to post his GoFundMe. Um, and if... Any of the b- albums that he's played on, and that could be shining, it could be lots of different things. If any of them have ever touched you, um, be a heavy metal uh, hero and go and give the give our boy a few quid, and let's see if we can uh, sort it all out. So follow the links underneath this if you're listening on pod; uh, that should be in the podcast description. It should be under the YouTube. Um, let's see what we can do for our boy Nick. The podcast is sponsored by metal blade records you can find the link below maybe you need i'm sure there's an album somewhere or other there that our boy nick has played on but there's um if you want to go and get those 90 most of eight records you want to revisit kind corpse the bleeding you want some cool merch some limited edition picture discs in fact they're reprinting all of the old primordial once again which have been out of print for a while so many cool things 40 years of history um, you can go to Indiemerch.com slash metalblade records and use the promo code AA23, Agitators Anonymous 23. Um 2023, apologies for that. Um and just follow the links below in the description. You can go there and you can save 10% on your order, which believe me is pretty big deal. Before I get into discussing the do's and the don'ts or the the where and the whereabouts of this Cavalera decision, um I can also say that next month I'm going to be starting a um, a promo for um, an Irish band a demo band well I mean demo I suppose in the traditional sense that I would have thought of but their new album is um, being put out there next month and I'm not gonna do pre promo but I'm gonna say if you're out there you got a band um, hundreds sometimes thousands of people listening every day or two um, I think the podcast is at 350,000 listens or something like this now um, It's a captive audience. If you think to yourself that you would like me to do an ad read for your band, get in touch. Get in touch and we can work something out. Um, Also, backdrops. You want a backdrop for the band? Maybe it's the very same band you're contemplating contacting me to do an ad read for you. Well then, get in touch. We can figure you out. Right then, right then. The Cavalera Brothers um, re-recorded Bestial Devastation um, and... I think they recorded a couple of songs off Morbid Visions. And I'm just, it started a debate as to why they did such a thing. And I thought I'd go through the reasons why a band would do that, why bands have done that. Now, first things first, I remember having a conversation um, with, um, actually it was a guy at Musco Rock, we are in Sweden, and we were standing at um, the, if I'm not incorrect, at the stall of the very great I Hate Records, who released so many cool albums over all the years. Um, And this guy was talking to me, and he said, oh, all these old thrash bands, and we just happened to be talking about At War, a band very close and dear to my heart. I'm a huge At War fan. I ordered to kill in retaliatory strike proper nasty um, thrash metal. Anyway, and he goes, oh, they're all just reforming for the money. And I said, dude, do you really think that's what they're doing? Like an old band from the 80s is, you know, as relatively small as At War. They're really reforming for money. And he looked at me like, what? What do you mean? I said, do you think bands like Whiplash... And at war are like, that's the main reason. And he he just sort of stared blankly at me. And I said, how much do you think they're getting paid for a gig? It's most likely like um, flights and maybe five, six, seven, 800 euro, maybe 1500 euro. Um, That's not really money, money. And we got into this discussion and we sort of went through some of the, I said to him, okay, so there's a whole load of other, again, You know, again, is my will and my want to try and reduce emotional arguments to the um, to the end of tedium, in the sense that you you've got to engage with all of the. Gray area, all of the little points of light that lead you into this sort of emotional decision that, like, you see an old trash band's logo on the bill and you go, ah, oh, they must be doing it for the money, whether it's artillery or whiplash or at war. The chances are, well, the fact is, not the chances, but the fact is that you're pretty far from the truth. If you think about it, a band like At War in 1986, 87, 88, they're young men, right? There is a certain pressure. Um, on you to succeed, to maybe sell records, because other bands around you are selling records. Nuclear Assault are getting big, um, you know, Testament. There's thrash bands that are actually making it out of the gate to having a career. Um, And At War, you know, in the grand scheme of things, are small fry, so to speak on your renaissance records but there's a certain kind of pressure you're young and the responsibilities of life haven't really begun to rear their ugly head let's say as they do normally when you're 26 27 or 28 unless of course you're a peter pan like myself um, and you just live that charmed life well if you're not so lucky to live that charmed life the responsibilities of your existence will catch up to you at 26 to 30 And I sort of said to this guy, well, don't you think maybe what happened to a band like Out War is 92, 93 comes along, um, 91 even, and the 90s change an awful lot of stuff from the 80s. You've got grunge coming in. The old thrash speed metal ways are kind of on the way out. Maybe they never made it to Europe to tour. And they just sort of run out of steam, but also life catches up with them. I bet you there's kids involved. Um, becoming fathers, all that kind of thing. And they just, the band just goes into the deep freeze for a while. And then those kids at some stage become 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. And they can get back into their garage, into the rehearsal space and go, why not? Why not have another go? They have a look online and they see, well, people are still talking about, are banned and then slowly but surely they make a few tentative steps back into the underground send a few emails send a few messages have a look on message boards i'm talking like 10 15 20 years ago when those things really mattered and they think to themselves wow and slowly but surely maybe an oliver from a keep it true or something like this reaches out to them and goes hey what about a rigor mortis reformation and they get the guys back together and they get in the shed and they go, wow, well, okay, our kids are old, much less responsibilities now. with an awful lot less pressure in a sense. Maybe they've established um, methods of um, economy between those times. Perhaps, you know, like the guys in the band have, um, you know, who knows, perhaps they own a factory and they're employing people. They can, they have the money, they have the means, they have the little bit of space and they can go, you know what, we're 40 something now. Um or even 50 or even older, and they can go, all right, let's try it. Let's try it again. Let's play a couple of shows a year, make every show a Saturday night, travel a little bit. And I said, do you really think that's what they're doing for money? For money. And it really struck me that there's a very great disconnect between um, maybe, of course, what uh, the practicalities, the the ugly practicalities of the music industry are and what people perceive these things. So let's take, for example, this bestial devastation. Um, Cavalera Brothers thing now the first thing to be said about it is that's their songs they can do what the fuck they want if they want to do that they are within their rights to do that they wrote those songs no one else wrote those fucking songs that's one thing that really pisses me off when I hear people saying oh why is this band playing this live album from 92 94 you know what they can do that they wrote that it's up to them if they want to do it it's your decision whether you go and see it or not you make the decision right down and there. If you think they're doing it for the wrong reasons, stay away. But you know what? The, as the songwriters of those songs, that is their um, prerogative. And the reason I say that is because um, we're living—it's such a crazy, crazy environment now—the uh, live music industry. And for many bands, they record a new album. Um, then you don't—you know—recording a new album very often, as we have just done with Primordial. Um, you're not. You don't get paid royalties from that. You're not making money from streaming. There's not an, There's not a third revenue stream or fourth revenue stream coming in. And who knows? Perhaps um, you've got younger fans now who never saw Covenant, for example, by Morbid Angel. They never saw that tour. And maybe to see David Vincent and Pete Sandoval on tour um, and stand right up close and go, "Fucking hell!" It's David Vincent. He's singing Rapture. Um, that's a pretty cool thing for them to get to see one more, um, once before, to roll the dice one more time by David Vincent. Now, you could say it's crass opportunism. And both things can be, I suppose, relatively true at the same time. But I don't think so. I think that those are his songs he can do with them as he wants. If Morbid Angel, the Morbid Angel who exist now, wanted to go on tour formulas, they can do that. That album is 25 years uh, years old, by the way. So they can do that if they want. I think that it's very, um, it's such a sort of, I kind of, on the one hand, I do see the argument that it points to the fact that people aren't engaging with the newer albums by these bands. But that's not always the fault of the bands themselves. I mean, and you can see this now with Enslaved. And um, for example, I spoke with Gritta from Enslaved about the idea of, uh, playing you know, some of your older albums, and you know, why should he care what anybody thinks? Promordial is playing to the nameless dead next week. The first time we ever do that, and I thought to myself, well, you know, as a as a favour to be on the gates who've taught, um, who've you know, behaved great, greatly towards Primordial over the years, um, then why not? Why shouldn't we play something different? And we were rehearsing it the other day, and we thought, wow, this is actually quite challenging and it stops us falling into the default setting of playing the same old live songs that we've been playing for years. It's a bit of a challenge. And why not? We wrote those songs. So um, if less and less people are coming to see your band um, and you're in this sort of strange halfway house of not knowing what to do with the rest of your career and you think, well, you know what? Why don't we go and tour the album from 95 that was popular? Try and get some of those older heads and bodies back into the room and say to them, hey, by the way, there's a new album down at the merch stall. Or there is a new album and then you see a spike in um, your streamings of that new album well then you know good for you you've got people um, through the door into the space that you share with them and gone after you've played that classic album you go hey by the way here's three new songs and they go okay cool and that's a way of trying to rebuild some form of an audience that's been shattered by streaming platforms if you ask me so it's not your business in a way I think now, let's take this Cavalera reissue. First things first, why do bands do that? Now, I think that um, let's, be, you know, let's be straightforward about all of these reasons. The first one is it's an easy thing to do. Um, the songs are written. They're there already. Like, why did Manor do it, Kings of Metal? It's to keep, um, I suppose, in, in the modern music industry, um, it's a spike for the Cavalera brothers online, you know, their, their Spotify um, numbers. It's a reason to go on tour. Um, so the Sepultura, who are also around, of course, now, and their other uh, guys, they're probably taking most of the streams from those old records. So the Cavalera brothers perhaps had the thought, well, we wrote those songs. Maybe some of those streams should be coming to our new um, vision of what we're doing together, which is the Cavalera brothers, you know, with the old logo, old Sepultura logo. And they think, well, those are our songs. Let's re-record them. And now, do I agree with the principle? Like, you know, Sodom did it within the sign of evil, which was apparently like um, an an aim to try and help witch hunter, well, get his shit together. Um, Now, so reason one is that it's it's a kind of easy option, um, which, you know, you can criticize. The songs are there already. Um, Should you go back to that first recording? I mean, you know, it's like, you know... Capturing that first take is like capturing lightning in a bottle. And as an old man, um, or as an older man, you're competing with a younger version of yourself. And heavy metal is so intrinsically linked to the impetuosity and energy of youth that trying to recapture that at 50. I mean, do you want to hear, uh, do you really want to hear Metallica try and re record Kill 'Em All? It, you, you know, it just kind of, oh, it sends a shudder down your spine because that is so part of being young. Now, Bestial Devastation is a little bit different. It is, but it's much more, um, it's much more underground, much more scummy, much more filthy sounding. And in fairness, they didn't do such a bad job. I found the In, in the Sign of Evil pretty difficult to listen to, but it's not bad. But what it gives them is an opportunity then to try and reinvent Sepultura's name, at least in those 80s albums. Like they can go out and tour now Schizophrenia, Beneath the Remains, more revisions, and that can give them, that's their angle of Sepultura, and they can leave the Sepultura that's around now to do the post-1990s stuff. So they're kind of reclaiming their territory, so to speak. And I don't really have an issue with that. As I said, they they form the band and those are, that's their songs. Um but it is a risky thing to reach back into the past and try and recreate what you were doing as a young man um in a modern context it gives you a reason to tour it's a spike in online um attention for the band it gets people talking and even if it's not the greatest artistic statement in the world it gives you a reason to get back on the road it gives you something to for your management to send to and this is quite a cynical but very straightforward way of looking at it also it gives it gives your management something or your booking agent something to sell to um a hellfest or a vakin or whoever the festival may be and go hey it's cavalera old logo eighty songs yep you know what that means and i can see the logic in that as well it's a kind of grim logic of the modern music industry but i can see the logic in that now let take for example bonded by blood sometimes there's a there's a change of members right and you want to introduce a new singer to um you know old fans which essentially is what live after death is and i'm going to start talk a little bit about some of the live albums but if you change your singers or change musicians sometimes um live after death was an was a way to introduce bruce dickinson singing those old songs to a new generation of iron maiden fans when iron maiden were at their absolute peak they were literally just storming the world and they thought well you know they couldn't go in and re-record some of those um old songs i mean that would be too crass that would be a vulgar sort of
0: hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news
1: and airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host statement but you know what here's bruce belting the shit out of the Mid long beach arena so that's one way to go but if we look at the exodus bonded by blood way to go now it's a little bit before my time but from what i understand bonded by blood the album had been around the tape trading circuit for almost a year before it came out. Um, It was recorded in July 1984 and it was not released until 1985 sometime. Um, now this would appear to be because of some sort of really big argument with their label. Um, I remember going down into the sound cellar, which is the shop in famous rock shop in Dublin, somewhere maybe eighty seven, with my mother. I think I was twelve or thirteen, and the the, the shop being full of, um, you know, older kind of scruffier metalers with long hair and being really self conscious and. Um, Buying Bonded by Blood and Hella and my mother had to pay for them and being like literally just sweat dripping down your brow because you didn't know how you'd be judged by all the old heavy metalers. Well, anyway, Bonded by Blood was recorded. One of my all time favorite albums, by the way, it was recorded for Torrid Records. Uh, who the fuck are Torrid Records? Now, here's something that maybe a lot of people don't think about is that what was the contract that was signed with Torrid Records in 1984? So it could be that Bonded by Blood, which must have sold over half a million copies, perhaps even more, maybe it is that Torrid Records literally just took the money and Exodus never got paid for anything. Highly likely, possibly, right? So they never got any royalties, they never got any sales statements, and I, by all accounts, I never heard of Torrid Records ever again. Did they ever release anything ever again? What kind of contract was signed? Maybe it was a 25-year contract or a 30-year contract who knows maybe it was in perpetuity which means um, the album was owned for all time by the record label but perhaps exodus had to wait 20 25 years then they were able to re-record it what you have to do with, what you have to realize is that torrid records own the recorded version of bonded by blood they don't own the intellectual copyright of the songs as i they, you know they don't own the the combination of notes as i understand it so exodus could re-record bonded by blood Um, re-record it, it would sound a bit different. They've got, you know, obviously different vocals going on, a different vocalist singing over it, and slightly different artwork. And they could probably legally prove this is not the same record as you owned, your recorded version is from 1984, 85. And then they can go, it's a bit of a kind of a fuck you, which is like, hey, you never paid us for that first vision version. We're going to re-record it now and we're going to re-release it perhaps on our own label or license it for a, a sum of money. And that seems like a recompense for all the missed royalties from all those years. It's very possible that that's what that was. about. I don't know that that's what that was about. And perhaps um, I'm just guessing. And there's lots of these record labels. If you pick up an old thrash metal record from the 1980s. Um, and look at who the label is, you might go, who the fuck is that? And if you think to yourself, whatever happened to those contracts? um, You look at, um, I know a record label right now is re-releasing some old vinyls by a quite famous Canadian thrash band. Um, And I'm not going to say who these are, but um, maybe by perhaps by just by contacting the original, original people, the original printing press, the original publishing house, the original people who would have housed these contracts, you can find out the details. Um, And you can do that with pretty much everything. It can take a lot of work to find the original people. But this was always an underground thing. If you thought that you were being ripped off by a label, create an address in Peru or Chile or Colombia Press your record in Eastern Europe and have a fake record label address on the back. That was, um, I think, that was an Abominations of Desolation thing, right? Morbid Angel. There was an address, I think, in Japan. Perhaps it was pressed in Japan for a while. Unsure. I think that might have been. Um, again, I'm speaking off off the cuff here, and somebody, no doubt, shout at me, go, no, that's a real pressing. In fact, my Abominations of Desolations is right there, looking at me. I could look at your back of it, but I'd have to stretch across the room, and you know, I'm getting old. Um, so the point being that it sometimes it's a contractual thing. Sometimes it's simply that a band has recorded an album, the label is folded, nobody knows what to do, nobody has ever gotten any paid anything. And think about, about it back then, that you're talking about a lot of physical copies back in the 80s of records. Um, and um, how many were never accounted for? How many musicians were never paid? Um, if we take, for example, Man War, their, I think, quite awful decision to record, re-record Kings of Metal and that kind of stuff, why are they doing that? You will see, you will probably have seen on Spotify in the last couple of years. Um, in the beginning, where loads of manual records were not available on Spotify. This indicates um arguments with the original labels, with who owns the publishing, with who owns the digital rights. Um and if you can't find a record by a particular band on Spotify, that's usually the reason that there's a conflict there going on. So, re-record the album, then You kind of own that new recorded version and all the people who were wondering, well, why the fuck is X album not on there? Um, They find it on there and they listen to the new one. It's also an excuse to go on tour for the record and perhaps there's an anniversary coming up. So there's lots of uh, reasons why bands do it. I mean, I sat and talked with um, younger thrash metal fans who said, oh, we don't really like the sound of Bonded by Blood. And I thought, wow, I broke my brain because Bonded by Blood to me is one of the most great sounding records of all time. But I realized that they liked the newer version of um, Let There Be Blood, I think it was called. They liked the newer version, the crunchy version with the tight bass drums and all that kind of stuff. So what does re-recording an old album do? It breeds life sometimes into a flagging career. It's a reason to tour. It's a reason to play festivals. Um, and on the other side, the other side of the argument is, well, fuck you. Why can't we do it? I get it. Would I do it? No, I don't think so. Um, a live album is one thing. Uh, and we made a live album, Gods to the Godless, where it included songs from, um, you know, older songs. But it's very, it's very hard to go back and, as I said, capture that lightning in a bottle of those, of your first couple of records because you're a young man. And also it's to do with technology. And you're recording generally analog to tape, and um, there's particular amps, particular guitars, and you're also, you know, learning your instrument, you're learning with the engineer. There's a lot of virgin territory and a lot of naivety uh, that goes into creating the charm of those records. Go and re-record them um, with better gear, you can play better. They ju- They will just lose that feeling, they'll lose that sense, of the beauty that made them what they were back in the original Um, recordings. Uh, We did it, you know, we recorded a couple of songs from our demo for our first album um, but by and large and then the Burning Season EP I think has some songs from the one recording of the first album but by and large they're left in a a period 25 years ago or so more and would I record them now? No. I don't think so. Play them live? Sure. And if there was a great recording of something live um, why not release it but by and large no. And it's a sad sort of it's a sad thing that's happened now. Is that the, the 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 beauty of the live album is really a thing of the past? Um, you all know, of course. I'd meant, just mentioned Live After Death. Live After Death is 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 the record that kind of defines for a lot of us the eighties. I remember. Here's a nostalgic story. But I remember walking home from school every day with a friend of mine. Um, and we used to stop off in this little kind of like grocery shop. And they had about 50 vinyls in the middle. And we used to look at Live After Death every single day and read the liner notes and look at the... Every day we would look at it. And this is we were this is maybe 1980... I don't know. We're eight or nine. And we used to save up your 20, 30 that you would get for doing household chores. And then one day you had £8.20 or whatever it was because it was a double album to own Live After Death. And it was one of the first things that I owned. And it was back when a live album was a defining record in a band's career. After you'd made two or three or four records, you made a live album. That's kind of a standard music industry thing of the 1970s and 1980s. Yes, I know you're still trying to get over my cutesy story. Well, you're just going to have to get over it. Um, but that's what happened in the 1960s and the 1970s. I just put in famous 70s live albums into my search engine here. And my God, the amount of bands who were defined by a live album. Um, and like, like, I'm just looking off the top here, you know, Live at Leeds, The Who. And for many people who don't own the albums before that, this is the album that defined the Who. Frampton Comes Alive, one of the biggest selling live albums and albums of all time. Cheap Trick of Budokan, Made in Japan, Deep Purple, If You Want Blood, You Got It, ACDC, It's Alive, The Ramones, Live and Dangerous, Thin Lizzy, arguably the album that kind of made Thin Lizzy the first couple of albums weren't a success and even by the late 70s they still weren't really shifting the units people thought they should do. This album was basically, basically what it's doing is it's taking, it's a, the song's already written, it's like a, a greatest hits but it's live and there was such an art to it. Live Killers by Queen, Live of the Fillmore East, The Omen Brothers, Unleashed in the East, Judas Priest, Double Live Gonzo, Ted Nugent, and David Bowie live, Yes, Bob Marley and the Wailers, oh, Lou Reed, Rock and Roll Animal, Neil Diamond, um the list alive by kiss which is I mean this is just one of the greatest live live albums ever made um and it's where relentless touring um sharpened you know live bootleg aerosmith humble pie oof. it's where relentless touring sharpened the band's um you know the the, the weapons the tools till they were just so um primed and ready to go. And if maybe your career hadn't quite taken off with album number one, number two, number three, the live album was a safe bet. It was like a consolidation of territory. Um, And it was also, if perhaps things hadn't gone quite the way you'd hoped, like Thin Lizzy, even though Thin Lizzy were a fucking big band, um, you read back and you've realized that um, 77, 78, there were still doubts about quite where they were going or what they were selling. The, The classic live album is what defined a band's career. If you look at Unleashed in the East, thing is where we're all heavy metalers here, um, Unleashed in the East has a power that isn't really afforded some of the songs that are maybe on um, Sin After Sin, for example. It, it, it's one of the greatest, even though the vocals, I think, aren't live. There was a BBC radio broadcast from Osaka. I used to have that somewhere or other. That was the night before, the two nights before, and that was totally gonzoid. Amazing. The version of Starbreaker oh, would blow the top of your head off. Um, and I remember I used to play that relentlessly and stand it up against Unleashed in the East. I preferred it to Unleashed in the East because I think Rob redid did some of the vocals for Unleashed in the East. A lot of bands messed with um, live stuff from back then but it was a defining statement, a defining moment. It's one of the reasons why we made, one of the reasons why we made the Gods to the Godless live album by Primordial. Now it's not perfect by any means, but Bang Your Head, the much missed Bang Your Head had the live uh, mobile device. Basically they have it like a truck or like a side uh, room uh, where they can, you know, every, like a, a mobile recording studio right beside the stage. And they just recorded it and they said, oh, by the way, we have this recorded. Would you like to listen to it? And I thought, I listened back and I thought, well, we played pretty well. So with me and Ola, who made um, Exile Amongst the Ruins, we mixed it in a tiny little room in a forest in Sweden uh, for three days. And we found we didn't overdub a single thing. We didn't change a single thing. We found like, wow, we actually played pretty well. And it was so much fun. It, w- it was one of the records I took the most joy in releasing because it opened out into purposely done as the old film kind of like... Um, kind of old cinematic style of those old live albums as uh, status quo and that kind of thing when you open them the big gatefold and it gave me probably more of a thrill sometimes than some of the albums we've actually released because it just reminded me of being um 11, 12 or thirteen, and picking up a Maid in Japan, or as I, of course, live after death is defining one for our um, for our generation. It's interesting to note how many thrash bands never quite did it. Decade, you know, Decade of Aggression, Slayer did it. Metallica never did it. Uh, Megadeth never really did it. Uh, Anthrax probably did it, but I don't know about it. But. Um, It was a really big thing for 70s and 80s heavy metal and hard rock bands. I mean, and not just them. And also on this list is like Aretha Franklin and Frank Zappa, Marvin Gaye, Janis Joplin. Oh, Janis Joplin. Well, now, yeah, there's there's a voice. Um, Indeed, you know, and Aretha Franklin, like I said, so many incredibly uh, amazing live albums. Sadly, not really with us. But as with all things... I find on um, the podcast talking about the nerdism of heavy metal and all that kind of thing or about politics or about much of the culture war stuff or about many things is that is the truth is that many different things can be true at the same time. Um, You can view uh, re-recording albums or you can view things in a commercial kind of um, you know um, crass it's the wrong word but you can view things in a commercial sense and and jump to a conclusion of dishonesty towards these things or you can say well look they own the songs they can do whatever they want you can also jump to a very simple conclusion of like well they're their songs maybe they're just having fun with them why not like why not do this if you get a short spin around the ball of dirt maybe the cavalier brothers looked at each other and went listening to bestial devastation and went you know this were these were great times let's try and relive about that energy um all, all things can have percentages of them that are true at the same time. It's really up to you to judge. And I suppose you judge one whether you buy it, stream it, go and see it live. Or it's just a way sometimes for bands and musicians of redressing wrongs that had happened to them previously. Um, I would imagine if you were to take a lineup like a Keep It True lineup, um, which is a lot of old bands, and you're to do like a Vox Pop, a Vox Populi, a little, uh, go around with a little, uh, you know, just record the answers and ask every musician there who plays in all these old bands, did you ever get paid anything? Did you ever find out what you sold? Did you ever get any royalties, any publishing royalties? Did you ever write a song for anybody else and get paid for that? Um, did, you, did you get what you were owed? And I don't even mean what you think you were owed, but even just what you were owed. Did you understand the contracts? Did a label disappear? All of these things you would find. I would, I would, my intuition would tell me 75, 80, 90% of these musicians would would say, Yeah, I never found out what we sold. I mean, I once walked into a record shop in Chicago, um, somewhere in, uh, oh, it's a long time ago, uh, 20, 25 years ago, and found a double uh, edition of Journey's End and um the first primordial album rama like a double cd i i never licensed or never was never even um i was never even approached to okay the release or um, to agree to it or to even look over the art it was just a license that was done behind the band's back a contra- some contractual thing that of to which to this day we've never really gotten to the bottom of or got paid for or been accounted for. Do I know how many copies the first Bromondial album sold? No. Was I ever accounted for that? No. Did you ever receive your publishing advance? No. What is publishing? Well, that's something for another podcast, isn't it? Um, in the beginning, you're young and you sign record contracts and you don't. you're just so excited to make an album. You don't really know... Uh, the repercussions that can happen five, ten years down down the line. Now, of course, the repercussions back in the day I, uh, when there was lots and lots of physical sales and lots more money coming in, I think we're a bit more weighty than now when you're just talking about who owns the digital license and something that's perhaps only coming out digitally and how much money are you wor- due for 200,000 streams? Um, well, the reality probably is 20, 30, 40 euro or something and maybe 200 euro tops. Um, if... It's more than maybe it's 2,000 euro, but still compared to what bands were being ripped off in the 70s and the 80s and the 60s, of course, go back to Motown and all those, um, and all the um, blues musicians um, who got ripped off for playing on huge records. Anyway, that's a dull different uh, podcast. Um, You don't know what you're quite signing when you're young and labels can take advantage of that. And there are albums out there, I'm sure, that have sold half a million copies that... um, no musician has ever seen any money for and they didn't really know how to get it, who to talk to, all those kind of things. Anyway, my friends, episode 169, I think, is just a kind of unscripted, unfocused ramble across. Why is it that bands re-record music? And the reasons are manifold. Like everything else in this world, the choice is not binary and we are not good or evil. We just reside in the middle ground. Well, happy purgatory to you all. I'm Alan Averill. This is Agitators Anonymous, and I will see you next time.